Hello and welcome to the Parson Brown Podcast. This is a podcast where we take theology panels we've done with our Hendersonville Church of the Nazarene Discipleship Ministries, edit them down just a tad, and make them available for audio. This week, we welcome Gabriel Gordon, who talks about his book, God Speaks, on the inspiration of Scripture. We ask that you sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Good evening, everybody. This is our first in our next series of theology, what we've called roundtables. Obviously, there's only two of us here, but that's because um, we've, we're fortunate to have Gabriel Gordon joining us tonight. Gabriel has written the book, God Speaks, on the inspiration of scripture. Um, I fortunately got an advanced copy, so I was able to read it before it came out. Um, but obviously, that has no bearing on what I thought of the book. We've, we've often talked about how we can either like or not like a book, and I did purchase a copy because, um, A, I like to have the Kindle copy, and B, it's just the best thing to do when somebody gives you the opportunity to read a book to start with. But um, as we've talked about a lot here about theology and about what we talk about and what we think about, we like to have people that sometimes may th- cause us to think a little bit outside of the lines that we typically are in make us stretch, make us think a little bit about what we're looking at. And always remember that, you know, no matter the book, no matter the person that writes it, that there's always something of value within it, because you're always going to find something that's important. But I think we're going to have a good time tonight. I think uh, what Gabriel has to say is going to be interesting to us and um, really look forward to this because it it is a good book. It's a thought provoking book and it is it is fairly accessible. So I would think that, that most people can pick it up and understand what he's talking about without any kind of theological degree or theological training even, and just at least be able to understand what we're talking about. So what we'd like to do first, Gabriel, is if you could just kind of give us an overview of your book, kind of explain what the book's about, maybe why you wrote the book and uh, your approach to, to what you were looking at here. Yeah, thanks, Brandon. Uh, um... Again, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I suppose the best place to start from would be to explain a little bit uh, about my background, um, just a tiny bit, and then kind of explain where I've ended up. um, And then that will kind of feed into why I wrote the book. So I come from a fundamentalist background, specifically uh, Assembly of God, which is one of the main Pentecostal groups, and uh, Southern Baptist background. And I'm entirely grateful for both of those traditions. They passed on the faith to me. I learned a lot. Um, I learned to value the Bible from the Southern Baptist tradition. I learned to value the Holy Spirit from my Assembly of God tradition. Um, But um, in college, I began to uh, deconstruct my theology, that fancy term for just questioning and doubting and all of those types of things. And I ended up finding that I no longer... Um, identified with particular doctrinal stances that were key to fundamentalism and even evangelicalism. And I found myself not even aligning as a Protestant anymore. And, but I was still creedal. And so as I was kind of exploring where I fit, um, I still, I ended up interning at a Southern Baptist church in Seattle, uh, of which I was kicked out of. 
And when I moved back to Oklahoma, I ended up getting connected with an Episcopal church, which is part of the Worldwide Anglican Communion. And what I found while I was there is that the Episcopal Anglican world is a, is a big tent. Um, there are lots of different kinds of Christians. You can be an evangelical Protestant as an Anglican. Um, N.T. Wright, if anyone's heard of him, would fit in that category. You can be a, a, a mainline progressive Protestant. Um where the Episcopalians are kind of known for that. You can also be Anglo-Orthodox. So you're a bit, or sorry, not Anglo. Well, yes, Anglo-Orthodox, but also Anglo-Catholic, which is uh, Anglo-Catholic is essentially you're Catholic in your theology without the Pope. Um, and then you can, like I just mentioned, be Anglo-Orthodox, which is Eastern Orthodox in your theo theological orientation, which is where the camp that I find myself in. And so I, the Eastern perspective tends to be um, radically different. Uh, bishop Callisto Ware, who's an Eastern Orthodox bishop, likes to say that the, the Protestants and Catholics ask the same questions. They just give different answers, but the Eastern Orthodox like to ask different questions. Um, so I think that I, I tend to ask different questions. And um, But through all of that, um, I ended up through all that deconstruction and reconstruction and kind of finding where I fit, I ended up coming to the position that uh, the idea of the Bible that I was raised on that is prominent in, in, in fundamentalism is the uh, is essentially an idolatrous position uh, of worshiping the Bible and that essentially makes the Bible equal to God. And I also found that for a lot of people, uh, my generation or not, um, who also went through a similar journey, a lot of us don't know what to do with the Bible anymore. Um, I've, I had a friend that I got together with that uh, goes to my seminary that recently said, I just don't know what to do with the Bible anymore. So I wrote this book, one, to, um, I see a lot of my calling and ministry as uh, as prophetic to call down and, and pull down idols um, and and remove them and call the church back to faithfulness to Christ. And so um, part of this book was a prophetic act to say, hey, essentially you're worshiping the Bible and let me give you a good um, give you some reasons and 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 second of all to to show forth a path forward for those of us who don't know what to do with the Bible anymore. And um, because the Bible is a wonderful collection of books. Um, it, it has been part of the church um, for hundreds of years. So um, in terms of an overview of the book, so I start off the book with six problems that I find with popular notions of inspiration. And I call them specifically and very intentionally popular notions of inspiration, because I don't think these are historical, right? I think a lot of these notions of inspiration are actually 100, 150 years old. Maybe they go back to the Protestant Reformation, but in reality, they're not very, they're not very old. They're very new and so popular um, that this is what the loudest voices are, are, are proposing to people. And so when people hear that the Bible is inspired, this is what they hear, but it's not really the historical position. So I go through the first position I outline is inerrancy. Uh, sorry, not inerrancy, um, the problem of evil. Um, and the problem of evil, uh, I'll just go quickly through these and we can dive in more if we want. But I go through the problem of evil as a problem for popular notions of inspiration. And then uh, inerrancy, um, general, uh, sorry, attributions of scripture, which we can dive into what that means. Uh, and then I go, the fourth problem is... Um, the generality of inspiration, how inspiration was used as a conception in the early church. The fifth one is the word of God. And this is the big one. This is the one I'm hitting on throughout the book um, is that 
uh, in the early church when they will we'll maybe dive into this, but in the early church, the word of God was restricted to, to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Uh, and then in the sixth uh, problem, I talk about Greg Boyd's accommodation theory and why it doesn't go far enough. And we can, again, we can talk about that a little bit more later if you want. The second chapter I dive into, so I talked, the first chapter is all about problems uh, with popular notions of inspiration. The second chapter, I actually begin constructing um, what I think is a, a better way to understand inspiration. And I start building off the work of Thomas J. Orr, who has a theology called essential kenosis, otherwise known as the uncontrolling love of God. And essential kenosis might sound a big fancy word, but really all it means is that God is uncontrolling love. And so Christians for forever have believed that God is love, and uh, Christians have also believed that God does not change. So if, and that God cannot act outside of God's nature. So, you know, so the, the, one of the epistles says that uh, God cannot tell a lie. Um, or that when we are faithless, God it remains faithful because God cannot deny God's self. Uh, you know, philosophers have said God can't do what's illogical. So there's this idea that God can only act according to God's nature. And so if God can only act according to God's nature, you know, God can only be God and God is love. And essential kenosis comes in and says, well, love is uncontrolling. We wouldn't say a dictator is a loving person, right? Um, so if love is uncontrolling and God cannot act outside of God's nature, then God necessarily gives freedom to creatures and cannot retract that. So this is one uh, way to solve or, or to address the problem of evil. If, uh, for instance, the Holocaust, if God uh, necessarily gives freedom but cannot control, then God can't control Hitler and prevent the Holocaust and therefore is not morally culpable, not guilty for failing to do, to act and prevent such evil tragedies. Um, and so I also talk about some of the historical precedents, some seeds of development for this doctrine of essential kenosis in that chapter. But then in chapter three, I asked the question, um, if God is uncontrolling love, then what does, how does that um, affect how we view the inspiration of the Bible? And what I end up arguing for is what's called a participatory theology of revelation. So participatory participation that we humans participate in, in revelation, God reveals God's self and we as humans respond to that revelation. And essentially what that response is, is a, uh, is a human interpretation of that revelation, which is what I would say scripture is. So then in chapter four, I addressed the, the question not does Jesus have a participatory theology of revelation? Because that would be a whole different book. But I asked, does the way Jesus reads scripture and interact with it and engage with it, does it fit better with what I'm proposing as a participatory theology of revelation? And I end up saying, yes, that's the, the conclusion I come to. And then in chapter five, I, I look at uh, participatory the theories of revelation in uh, the Christian tradition. Sorry, the dog just entered. Can somebody get the dog and close the door, please? Um, and so I look at the Eastern Orthodox tradition. I look at the, the Roman, thank you, the Roman Catholic tradition um, the, and the Protestant traditions. And I say, where do we see, uh, if any place, where do we see these participatory theologies of Revelation? And then in the last chapter, chapter six, I talk about, uh, okay, so how does my doctrine that I've been proposing of inspiration throughout this book how does it solve or avoid those problems, those six problems of popular notions of inspiration that we looked at in chapter one? And what are the implications 
of, uh, of my theory. And ending the book, I, I talk about, well, what do we do with scripture now? So that's, that's a very broad overview of the book. Right. So, um, and, and just to, to give everybody kind of a, a primer, um, and we, we may be hearing from Dr. Ord at some point in the next few months, but uh, Tom Ord uh, is within the Wesleyan tradition. Um, he's Nazarene, still claim him. Uh, he did teach it at NNU for, for many years, uh, but um, um, his essential kenosis is part of what um, he terms open and relational theology. And uh, so what, what Gabriel's talking about, building um, his ideas of inspiration upon the essential kenosis, as he said, you know, Tom wrote a book called Uncontrolling, you know, The Uncontrolling Love of God. And, and that's kind of what we talked about even this morning when we were talking about Psalm 23, where God can't keep us from going through those valleys of, of shadows and darkness when we choose to go that way, because it is outside God's nature um, and his total love for us to stop us from doing something which we choose, but God follows us there. And I think that's that's an important thing that in, in this participation, and as, as Wesleyans, uh, we also believe that we participate in salvation. Uh, Wesley often got accused of works righteousness because we believe that you must respond uh, to the offer from God. So um, some of this may sound out there at times, and that's fine. Um, and obviously feel welcome to ask questions on Facebook. Or if, if you want to text me, if you've got my number, text me as well. Uh, if you have questions as we go through this, because I'm sure some people will, especially if Billy or, or Pastor Terry are watching, um, they, they, they may have some questions as we go. And, and many of the others who may be watching this may have questions as well. And if you're watching this on replay later, as I, I like to call them our reruns, then um, you know, reach out and ask questions um, because I'm sure some people may have some questions about this. But um, I did want to ask you about, um, especially the discussion on the way the early church dealt with um, the phrase we would say the the word of God. Um, I think, <clears throat> sorry, I think it was it Origin. I'm trying to remember who. When, um, or was it Gregory? I can't remember which one, but um, you have a quote where when interpreting um, Hebrews and the, the scripture that, that is written, you know, that mm. the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, that the way that was spoken about and commented on was that instead of using the phrase it, it was the phrase he. So specifically saying that the word of God being sharper than a two-edged sword was a person and therefore Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And I think, I think for us to look back, especially, you know, you're speaking of an Eastern um, understanding. That's also um, where Wesley got a lot of his ideas. And, and mm -hmm. we talk about that in our classes and we, we talk about that here at HCN a lot that there is a huge influence of Eastern theology upon um, Wesleyan and even holiness theology. So we really do appreciate um, that stream. 
but I'm thinking when, when we look at the way the early church dealt with this, when, whenever they would talk about the word of God, especially I would say when the canon of the New Testament did not even exist, they were always talking about Jesus, were they not? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. So, in, in, and I, I'm glad you brought the example, it, it was Athanasius, Athanasius. Um, in, in his book on the incarnation, which C.S. Lewis writes a great preface for. And so uh, when we, as you point out, when we read Hebrews 4.12, the, the word is a sort of uh, sword of God, sharper than every, any two-edged sword. Um, when we read that in fundamentalist and evangelical churches, we read that, oh, it's, he's talking about the Bible. But as Athanasius talks about, and kind of an as a side, he's not even specifically talking about, he just kind of mentions off to the side, um, almost as as an afterthought. It's just an assumption. And this this is what's important. If you really want to understand someone's theology, you look at what do they assume to be true? And for Athanasius, this is something he merely assumes. He doesn't, it's it's not a, a big thing on his mind. And if it's okay, I'll just read his quote real quick. Mm -hmm. So he says, indeed, um, actually, oh, here it is. Okay, so he says, for the son of God is living and active, works daily and affects the salvation of all. So he he references Hebrews 4.12 there. So he he clearly um, thinks that when Hebrews 4.12 is speaking about the word of God, it's talking about Jesus. And, and this is what we find in the New Testament. And this is what we find in the early fathers. Uh, when, when they talk about the word of God, they're almost, if not every time, referring to Jesus. Uh, it's, it's, and even in the Eastern Orthodox Church today, they still, they won't call the Bible the word of God. It's, it's still Jesus as the word of God. Um, and so what I try to do in the book um, in, in the actual uh, main part of the book, I do go through a number, I think six um, church fathers in, in their in particular passages with their, where they're very specific that when they say word of God, they mean Jesus. I also go through a new t- few New Testament um, uh, passages too. And then in the appendix, I, I go through quite a lot more. So yeah, so um... So I think that's I think that's an important thing to look at. So um, that that what what Gabriel is talking about here is not some newfangled approach to anything. It's it's like a lot of things that come from the east. It's it's the old fangled way of looking at it. It's mm-hmm. the the idea that the the orthodox small o understanding of what comprises what we believe is is the ancient way. And a lot of a lot of stuff has has happened over the years, especially here in the West. That's the things have been layered upon layer upon layer of the way we understand things. And um, I would agree, and and I think we've talked about it, um, which is why I think you know we've talked about what our understanding of of Scripture and the Bible is within the Church of Nazarene. Our understanding of inerrancy, at least, is that that the inerrancy of scripture is only inerrant in places where it's necessary for us to understand salvation. And obviously that opens us up to a big tent, not quite as large as the Anglican communion, obviously, because there's just a, that's just, that's a, that's a huge mess in some ways, but it's a beautiful mess, a lot like ours as well. You know, there's, there's, there's a large tent with tent pegs everywhere and people pulling on them and going different places. But, 
there's there's a great variety of of understanding within the Christian world, and and that's kind of what we bump into all the time now. I mean, the internet's made it amazing that we can we can have these things. Um, and as an aside, I would think that. Um, you know, we talked early last year in the midst of the pandemic when we were shut down that that God didn't bring the pandemic. God wasn't trying to teach us anything through it, but that God could redeem it. And I would say that this conversation we're having, can you all imagine in 2019, we could have had an author of a book that just came out, you know, talking to us here. So, um, you know, these are the ways that, that God is participating. And I think that's another important thing to talk about because you will hear us, you'll, you'll hear about um, Ord's uh, theology, open and relational, um, Gabriel talking about the participatory understanding of revelation, that, that these are not ideas that discount the working of God. In fact, I think they bring forward in much stark detail the fact that God works in the world. It is ongoing and working in the world. And I, I think that's something for us to understand about some of this. So just kind of an aside, but I think um, I'm going to jump into some of the six problems you had. And there's, there's a quote that, that kind of stuck out to me and it, it has to do with, with authorship mm. and what authorship means. And you said that, you know, trying to explain, because one of the dilemmas is that Often we, we equate biblical inspiration with authorship. And that, um, and so the way I understand that is, is kind of what, one of the things I talk about is that when we believe that human beings wrote scripture, we believe that God inspired those human beings, we don't necessarily know the vehicle of the inspiration. But one thing we do know is that the writers of scripture were not pens in the hand of God and the Holy spirit wasn't whispering dictations in their ears because a, if that were the case, then there would be, everything would sound the same. We wouldn't have individual voices, individual perspectives. We wouldn't have four gospels that are very, very different in some ways, especially John. And we wouldn't have the, the variety and the, the beautiful wealth of what we have, uh, both in the Old and New Testaments. We wouldn't have what we have in Scripture today if it weren't for the fact that there, there were human beings that wrote this and, and the inspiration is there. But I'm, I'm thinking that, I guess what, what you're trying to tell us is that there, there's a, a false equivalency between thinking that God inspired Scripture and that God is the author of Scripture, mm -hmm. is, is I think what you're what you're saying there, if, if I'm understanding that correctly. You're picking up what I'm putting down. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, yeah, so I mean, and I think that's important for us to understand that, that God is the inspirer of what was written. He's not the author, but um, that doesn't mean he's not the one who authors what we believe in our hearts and, and not the author of the participation in, in this world. Um, I, th I think a lot of times we get hung up on, on things like that, but, you know, whenever, whenever I worry about what, um, what we view and, and, and how we view who Jesus is, how we view what scripture is, I always look at John. 
I like looking at the first chapter of John and Gabriel and I were talking about that earlier as well, that, you know, if, if we, if we mistake how we talk about what word of God means, especially that big W and, and I know we could get into the fault, you know, into that issue as well, but in John, John is talking about Jesus. Jesus is a logos, um, which is, is the term Greek word translated into word. And, and that doesn't mean things written down on a page. That actually means an essence. It means, you know, that, that message, the essence there, and that Jesus is the essence of God. And, and that's what we talk about a lot, that Jesus is that perfect revelation of God. And anything outside of Jesus and everything must be looked through that, that lens, as we like to tell you that the hermeneutic, our, our hermeneutic is always Jesus. It's easy for me to say, obviously. So, but I, I would think that, you know, we, we, the way I like to say it is there is a religion out there that believes that God is the author of the text, but it's not Christianity. Christianity has never believed that God authored the Bible, but that human beings authored it under inspiration, whatever that inspiration means. But, you know, Islam does believe that God was the author of the Quran, that Muhammad was just a pen in the hand of Allah. So um, when we think of those things, we, we need to remember that there's a reason we believe that human beings wrote. And A, it's because that's the Hebrew tradition, that human beings wrote what was there under the inspiration of God. We talked today about the way David looked at things and, you know, when we look at the Old Testament itself, it argues with itself at times. So um, as I've told Pastor Cherry, I'd, I'd love to see the writers of Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and Job all in a room and arguing with one another about the, the essence of God, because they, they all seem to have a little bit different understanding of the essence. So I, I, think, I think that pulling that out, that one nugget at least, that, that we need to not equate inspiration and authorship is very important. Yeah, if, if I can touch on that. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so, and that, I think, raises the big, really big question for people. Well, if inspiration is not authorship, then what is it? And I think the first thing I would say is that in the, in the West, um, inspiration has tended to be seen in the text or in the author, right? Um, but in the East, it's actually tended to be in the, in, in the interpretation of the text. Um, and so, and I'm, I'm going to actually add something that's not in the book. So this is a treat for those of you who are watching, but so, so, so we need to understand second Timothy three sixteen in light of a couple different passages. So I think one of them is Genesis one, the creation of Adam. And I think the other one is, uh, Matthew five, 17 through 19, which I'll get to that one first, or I'll get to that one second. So when the author of second Timothy three sixteen is saying all scripture is God breathed. That term that we translate as God breathed uh, seems to be a new word. So when scholars are looking at any word in the Bible or any ancient text, how they determine the meaning of that word is by its usage. This is how we determine the meaning of words today is how they're used. If I say some word uh, that you've never heard before and I say in a sentence, 
you know, nine times out of 10, you're going to be able to look at the sentence and within that context, how I'm using, you're going to be able to figure out what I'm saying, what I mean by the word. And it's the same for ancient words and ancient texts that scholars study. So a New Testament scholar, for instance, is going to look at this word, God breathed, um, and they're going to say, is this used anywhere else in Second Timothy? If so, how is it used? And that will shine light on, on what the word means. If it if it's not used there, or even if it is, they're also going to ask the question, is it used anywhere else in the New Testament? And how is it used? How does it shine light on what it means? And they're going to also look at the Roman, uh, Greco-Roman context of the time mm -hmm. and the Jewish, the, uh, the broader Jewish context at the time as well. And through all of that, they're going to they're going to be able to piece together. OK, in the Greco-Roman context, it's used this way. In the Jewish context, it's used this way. In the New Testament context, it's used this, used this way. So this is probably what it means when the author uses it this way. The problem is this is a new word. It doesn't appear anywhere else in Second Timothy, the New Testament, the broader Jewish world or the Greco-Roman world. So what the heck does this word mean? The first time it's really used outside the New Testament is with the church fathers. So if we really want to understand what this word is used or how what it means, we have to look at how it's used and the first people that are really using this are the church fathers and how they use it is very, they don't use it to just talk about scripture, right? They use it to talk about bishops and councils and creeds and all sorts of stuff. And, and uh, a Greek philosophers even, and Clement of, Ale or Clement of Rome writing a letter probably in the late 90s um, actually talks about his own letter as God inspired. So if it really does mean authorship, then all these church fathers are saying oh that these monks they're the word of god this creed is the word of god this bishop is the word of god my letter is the word of god but it, when you look at what they're actually calling inspired it doesn't actually seem that they're calling it the word of god so they're probably meaning something else different by it so going back now that was a little bit of broader context so if we look at this this word is a new word and so second timothy seems to be pointing us back to genesis one so in the beginning it says that god uh formed adam from from the dust of the ground there's the first process and the second component so it's a two component creation process and the second component is god breathed god's life into adam and only then did he become a living being so Second Timothy isn't saying God formed scripture, made it. It's saying that God breathed into scripture the life of God. Well, what, what, what is, who is the life of God? John 14, 6 says, Jesus is the life of God. I am the way, the truth, and life. So hold on to that. So then in Matthew 5, 17, um, where it says, I've, Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So the word behind fulfill in Greek is the word palero. And Origen in the third century, who I quote a number of times in the book, um, his commentary on the book of Matthew, when he's talking about scripture, he uses a metaphor to describe scripture as a net. So he talks about scripture as a net metaphorically. And he says, before Christ came, the net was yet to be filled. And then he cites Matthew 5, 17. And so what, what is important for you to hear is he says, he, he understands that Greek word palero to be filled. And the word palero can be translated as to fulfill, which is how we normally translate it in Matthew. It can also be translated as to make full of or to fill. So Origen in the third century is understanding this word to fill. 
So if we go back and we translate the word like that, like origin does, then Jesus would actually be saying, I'm not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fill them. And what does Genesis say happens with Adam? That, that God breathes God's life and the life of God is Christ. And so if Jesus has come to fill himself into the scriptures, um, then that seems to be what's going on in Second Timothy, that the author is saying that God inspired, God breathed, is God's spirit filling the scriptures with the presence of Christ. Um, and this is a sacramental reading. So the way I like to think about it is uh, uh, the jelly donut analogy. So scripture is a donut and Jesus is the jelly that the spirit fills into the donut. And so in this way, um, Christ is sacramentally or incarnationally, uh, if you don't like the word sacrament, incarnationally present um, into the scriptures, not in the same way he is as a human being, right? Um, as a human, he becomes a human being but he incarnates his presence spiritually into the scriptures. And he then becomes the spiritual meaning of which we read scripture by. Right. So, so that is my general presentation of how I would say second Timothy three sixteen should be understood. Right. And, and, and I think it's important for all of us when we look at second Timothy three sixteen, it often gets listed as a reason to as describing scripture but all it's really doing is describing the purpose of scripture so mm. we need to remember that when when we throw second timothy three sixteen out it's telling us that it, it tells us first that scripture is god breathed inspired but then it says it's good for reproof and teaching it doesn't it doesn't actually describe what scripture is it doesn't tell us how to recognize what scripture is which is why you know, one of the reasons we as Wesleyan theolo theologically and doctrinally, we trust the church to tell us what the church sees as scripture. Now, we'll be honest here and say that we also don't trust all of the church because we, we are in the Protestant uh, stream, believe in 66 Bibles were inspired, but Gabriel could tell us that the Orthodox in the East and several churches in the East and the Roman Catholic Church and the Anglicans in some ways, depending on the stream, mm -hmm. are going to see a wider variety of those books, um, especially those deuterocanonical books that we talk about, the intertestamental books that uh, were in the Hebrew tradition, but written in Greek that got rejected in the first century. Another story, another book, another time. But we need to remember that we're trusting the history, we're trusting the church, and we're trusting those who have gone before us to interpret and tell us what these things mean and what comprises scripture, what comprises that which is inspired. Um, I was actually thinking um, on, on my way driving earlier back home, I was thinking of a thing from when I was a teenager, and you'll probably actually like this, Gabriel. Um, so when I was a teenager, a, a couple of our youth workers, um, and many of you know I, I grew up in the Churches of Christ, the non-instrumental ones, um, a couple of my youth workers were on a hill at camp talking about what inspiration was and what comprised scripture. And um, I'm not sure that they, they knew I heard them, <laughs> but I, I often was on the edges when I heard them talking about things that sounded important or different. 
and they were talking about scripture. And I remember one of them asking the question, so what if God is inspiring things today? What if some of these things we write, and, and at the time, Max Lucado was huge, and, and he is Church of Christ, that is his, his background. And he said, what if some of these books that, that Max Lucado writes are scripture? What if they're inspired? And of course, I mean, the, the group of people sitting there talking, these <laughs> one of them laughed, another one just said, oh, that, that's kind of crazy. But I think what he was asking is that thing that that, you know, we, we like to throw words like, oh, that was an inspired uh, movie, that was an inspired way of thinking, but sometimes we, we can look at this as the way that, that God participates. We, we understand what the church has said is scripture, and, and that's where, obviously, we as Nazarenes and Wesleyans believe authority comes, but we also believe in the authority of the church and the authority of the, of, um, the experience of the Holy Spirit and in the authority of our reasoning. So we do look at, at what we understand to be scripture, that is scripture, but we also understand that the Holy Spirit inspires us to do things and leads us. Um, and I, I know that, you know, if we say in, inspiration, that can sound scary, but I think what, what Gabriel's telling us here, the way that the early church looked at inspiration was it was in its interpretation of what it read. And I think it's very important um, we talk a lot, you know, Pastor Terry talked about it when he was talking about the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Uh, we talk about it whenever we talk about, especially the Old Testament, that when we read that, we read it through the lens of Jesus. And that's what Gabriel was just telling us the Eastern Church did. I love the jelly donut thing, but besides the fact that I love jelly donuts, <laughs> I love the idea that, you know, there is this scripture and that, that Jesus is breathed into it and thus filling it. And that's how we look. Um, and I, I know I, I have a copy of the Orthodox Study Bible. And when I look at some scripture, I look at that alongside Wesley's notes, um, scholars' notes, commentaries. And it is true, the Orthodox Study Bible, when you're in the Old Testament, they point to ways that Jesus fills that text. They show us ways in which Jesus affects the meaning of what they read. And we do know that the New Testament authors saw it that way. We know that Paul changed words, even in when he quoted Psalms, to make what, what everybody understood it to be mean what he understood it to mean in light of, of his experience with Jesus. So this is not also not a new idea, and it, it originated with the apostles, probably with the rabbis who taught. I mean, Jesus was, was not doing something that radically different in what he did in arguing with the text, uh, but he was, um, as Diane Butler Bass says, he was, um, it was his authority that was, was the unique and radical change, that he was speaking with authority because Jesus had authority over scripture. And I mean, I know Pastor Terry and I have had these conversations with others as well about what it means that Jesus has authority over scripture. Well, it means that as the second person of Trinity, Jesus has authority over scripture. And we know that, that when, we, when we view scripture, we need to look at it in light of the incarnation, in light of who Jesus is, um, because it can change things. Um, like we talked about Psalm 23 this morning, for example, the table where David was envisioning his enemy, seeing him vindicated, 
if we look at it through the eyes of Jesus, we realize that everybody at that table was somebody's enemy and that everybody was being vindicated because God loves everyone in that story. So um, same kind of thing. So let, let's go back though to essential kenosis, um, fancy term, but you kind of said, you, you, you kind of gave the thing for what it is, the uncontrolling love of God. And, and you say in your book, in the, in the intro especially, that you know, you built upon the idea of essential kenosis to build out the practical nature of what you were arguing um, for inspiration. And so I, I guess, could you elaborate a little bit on your understanding of essential kenosis um, and why that sparked um, what, what you saw um, and what you wanted to write about for um, inspiration? Yeah, so... In college, um, I was coming to, you know, this more ancient uh, or Eastern Orthodox perspective on what the word of God was. And so I remember coming across, uh, I think I first reached out to Tom, uh, probably summer 2017, he sent me a PDF of his uncontrolling love of God. And, and as I was reading this, and uh, later on, a couple of years later, I ended up reading Benjamin Somner's book, who uh, his work is um, significant in my book as well. He has a book on participatory theology called Revelation and Authority. And I remember I, at this point, I'd been pretty familiar with Tom's essential kenosis idea. So I'm reading his ideas of participatory theology, and I'm thinking to myself, this, this, is, this is the implication of essential kenosis, because if God ultimately cannot control then everything has to be interpreted right um if if it is if it is that god is the author if that's what we mean by inspiration well then there has to be a certain level of control otherwise it would it would no longer be god's word it would be interpretation so the moment control is let go of the moment that's made impossible is the moment that it has to be an interpretation now somner doesn't really deal with you know does god you know allow it to be an interpretation or does you know does that just happen because that's part of god's nature um but the, the fact remains that i think that um that indeed that if there is if god is uncontrolling then it has to be interpretation and so um essential kenosis uh, I'm trying to figure out where to go here from now. Essential kenosis is, I think, one of the, I found it as a helpful tool for kind of connecting some of the dots, right? Um, it gave some, because what I'm trying to do in the book, ultimately, is to make biblical idolatry impossible. And so participatory theology um, and, and the, the history of the church and how they understood the word of God, you know, takes us a long way. But if we add essential kenosis into that, then participatory theology is what you have to have. And if participatory theology is what you have to have, then the, then really you're, you're stuck with, uh, you're stuck with Jesus as the word. Um, I say stuck with, but, um, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that does make sense. I think, um, so I think it's, it's just looking at, at the fact that, you know, everything comes back to Jesus is, is what we're saying. I mean, I think that's, that's what the early church said. That's, that's what the apostles did. Paul always points back to Jesus. Paul always points back to his experience with Jesus. And, you know, every, everything that, that we understand is, 
the apostles responding to their experience with Jesus. And, and we know even in the gospels, you know, they, they tell us where, where they were confused at times because it, this was, there was a lot of stuff they were trying to understand what was going on because it was so outside of, uh, you know, how they understood um, God to be that it was difficult. And, and we know Peter struggled with it even after God showed him a different way. Peter kept going back to the old way of looking at who God is and who God loves and who God wants um, to be saved. You know, Peter, Peter and Paul got in an argument, a huge fight that caused one of the first councils of church of of the church, where everybody had to get together and say, "Okay, you know, there's these two competing ideas: the Gentiles belong or do not belong here now." What are we going to do? And the church ultimately decided through the power of the Holy Spirit that everybody was welcome in the church of God. So big, big C church there. So um, we do like to differentiate those sometimes. So um, let me pull up one more thing here. So I, I like, um, and you, you talked a bit about the fact that the, you know, you were talking about the early church fathers even mentioned Greek philosophers using the terms of inspiration uh, like we would. And I, I like your question, you know, do we really think that they believe the thoughts of people with virtue or the writings of these Greek philosophers were, were the word of God? And it's a rhetorical question because we don't. <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, we would reject, we would re reject the idea that a Greek philosopher um, was speaking as the word of God. But but the early church fathers found value, and we know that a lot of a lot of what their culture was, they brought into um, our experience of Christianity as well. So, yeah, and, and if I can add something to that, I think you know, and I talk about this a little bit in the book. You, we, we can't just discount, there's too many of the church fathers that said things like this, right? Um, for the, you know, second, third, fourth century, and so, and so on. Um, and we can't, you know, fifth, sixth century. <laughs> so we, for 500, first 500 years of the church, um, outside the New Testament, we, we have all these church fathers saying this. So we just, we can't discount it. Um, if we, if we discount this, one, it assumes that um, at some point, as soon as the New Testament was, canon was closed, which, you know, I have a footnote in there, there's never really actually been an official ecumenical council got together and closed the canon. And canon as a term actually until the 18th century had nothing to do with the Bible, um, interestingly enough. But so, so we have to think, if we're going to discount them, we have to think that um, once John or wh whatever last book was written, uh, revelations or whatever um depending on when you date things um that the church just screwed up they screwed the pooch after after that they just went way off the track and then you know however many hundreds of years later we just we, we got back on track and i think that's extremely arrogant because one it assumes how would there be that much discontinuity within you know 20 years um, let alone it assumes that our particular modern understandings um, are the correct ones and the ones 
by which we measure what authentic Christianity is. And so, and it also, in arrogance, it actually cuts out some of our foundation because we're built on top of the work that they did. So uh, I think I talk about it as an analogy. Um, if Jesus is the foundation and the work of the apostles is, you know, maybe like, you know, laying down the tile or something on the foundation, then, then the, the church fathers and mothers are actually the skeleton of the house that's built on top of that. So if we want to discount 500 years of church fathers and mothers, then what we end up doing is we end up tearing down the skeleton and then the whole thing collapses. And so I think, I think it's better to allow them to critique us and say, uh, well, maybe we have it wrong. And I, I think it would, I think also looking at it that way, it would discount the work of the spirit, mm. which, um, you know, we, we, we have to trust that the spirit worked in the church throughout the centuries. Mm. Um, there are groups uh, Jesus, that believe, yeah, yeah do I, go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I was going to say in Matthew 28, you know, Jesus says, you know, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and behold, I'm with you always until the end. So did Jesus just disappear for those 500 years? Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and there are groups, and and we'll 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 you know that's an elephant in the room in some ways. There are groups that believe that somehow there was this great apostasy in between um, Acts, right there, the the first century, and and the fifteen hundreds, or or they jump to the eighteen hundreds, or the nineteen hundreds, or the twentieth century, or you know twenty first century we have to trust that that the church that that jesus said you know that the gates of hell could not prevail against it because it's it's on the offense in a way we have to trust that that church endures and preserves and we have to trust that that church has has trusted god and trusted the spirit throughout time obviously there are different ways in which we express church and express um, some beliefs and doctrines, and, you know, we do believe as Nazarenes that we're part of this large, holy apostolic church, big C, but, um, you know, we have our own expression of that, obviously, but, but we don't discount others who are also part of that grand apostolic church, and if, if we all agree on the creeds, which is the what Gabriel's talked about, these creeds are, are that core. And we would, we would think that in the interpretation of those and in the, the way that they came to be, that those who created those creeds, agreed to those creeds ecumenically, that they would believe that that was inspired in a way by the work of the spirit, that those were commentaries on what they understood in scripture and in their experience and in the oral traditions and everything that they heard. So I would think that, you know, we, we can't, like Gabriel said, we can't discount what has gone before us, because if we do, then we're standing on an island, and it is, it is hubris to believe that we have a better understanding of God than, than those who went before us. Now, obviously, we have different experiences, and now we have other things that can explain things for us, we have some advances in science and technology and a lot that goes on and progresses. But we also believe that God is progressing with us under, you know, because God is there with us participating. And I think that's an important thing, both in the essential kenosis idea, 
and in this participatory theology and participatory inspiration that, and we do believe as Nazarenes that as we read the scriptures that the spirit helps us to understand what is in there. We also believe that we stand on the shoulders of the church before us and that we trust that those who have gone before to help us understand that um, what we read as well. So when we look at it that way, I think we could all say that as we read it, we are reading the inspired um, words that were written by others, but inspired by God and thus fill us. I'm going to go back to that jelly donut. I'm going to have to remember <laughs> the jelly donut now. Yeah. So I like you, you, you kind of gave a synopsis and or you're basically saying in the, in the case of the scriptures, I, I think this is on, I'm not sure exactly what page in the PDF. It was like around page 104, I think, or so. Mm -hmm. But you say authors write scriptures, God breathes on them, and then the words come to life. And I think that's that's the quick synopsis way of saying what you just told us, that that the authors wrote these scriptures and that God breathes into them and that then we understand those and we see God in those and we, we see the story of God in those. Um, and, and I think that that opens up a huge, a huge amount of wonder and mystery in, in who God is, but also allows us to know him better, um, i.e. through the incarnation. And um, I just, I think this, in, you know, and this idea can be scary that, that um, you know, we do believe in the authority of scripture, but we also, like I said, we believe in these other authorities. We, we put scripture, so as Wesleyans, we believe in the primacy of scripture, not the, um, only so see i can't even say the word i have trouble saying some of these words i don't like them so but we, we don't believe that scripture is the only we we do believe in the others um and we find ourselves actually um in the tradition of anglicans that's that's where a lot of our stuff comes from because john wesley was an anglican he never truly left the anglican church um although you know the methodists eventually did but you know, he was within that theology, although I've, I've argued several times he, he was more Eastern than he ever was Reformed, um, especially near the end of his life. And I think, I think what we're seeing here is, once again, that, that Wesleyan understanding. We, we could, we could kind of claim Gabriel even as a Wesleyan. He, he probably won't say it, but, you know, that Eastern stream comes in and influences his Anglican leanings there to to color that and that's you know that's what some of the ways we understand this but i do want to ask is billy even said he was waiting or he was watching i just wondered if if he had any questions or if anybody else had any i'm sure there's been some questions sparked and feel free to ask them there, there's no dumb questions um and and feel free to ask something if you want to um we won't <laughs> we won't uh nobody's gonna shame you yeah so. no shaming there you go there is no shaming so and and you know going off of what you said a little bit earlier about um you know listening to the whole church uh so i preached this morning on uh unity and i quoted dietrich bonhoeffer who once wrote um those who are not willing to listen to their brother are not willing to listen to God. And I really think that is a, um, 
is a great quote. And, and you know, when, when I write this book, um, my goal is not to divide people. Um, my goal is hopefully, you know, um, if you read the book carefully, you can see I'm always coming back in some ways to the creeds. I'm always coming back to what are those commonalities in the Christian faith. And this is something I mentioned in my preaching this morning is so there is lots of diversity in the Christian faith, but within the Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic and, and Protestant, we all affirm the Nicene Creed, right? We all read, we all, you know, some of us might consider ourselves uncreedal, but, you know, really the theology and the creeds we'd affirm. So there are these commonalities and that's what I'm, you know, I'm, there was an Anglican who lived, I think in the 17th century. And he says, you know, my, my heart is in the one holy apostolic undivided church before the split uh, of the East and the West in 1054. And that's really where my heart is as well, is I'm not interested in, um, you know, dividing people. I'm interested in in the church uniting over what, what, it's common to us and, and listening to, to others in the church. And I think we'll be much better off if we were to do things like that. I agree. It doesn't look like we're going to get, uh, let me, let me see if we can get any more, just see if anybody's left some questions. What they'll do is they'll wait till we're done and then they'll start sending stuff tomorrow. Cause they'll think about it or they'll pick it up, but um, just make sure that nobody sent one another way. So, I guess here as we get close to wrapping up, I guess, could you show everybody the book cover again? So um, I would encourage anybody that wants to pick this up at your, you know, great bookstores. Amazon has it. It's on Kindle. Um, you can see it. Great, great cover. <laughs> um, where else can people find information about you, Gabriel? So you can, I blog periodically at an ecumenical blog that I run. Um called the misfits theology club so if you go to misfitstheology.com we're also going to be having an ecumenical conference um in tulsa oklahoma october 22nd and the 23rd so i'll be there brian zahn and keith giles will be there if anyone knows them as well as a number of other christians roman catholic eastern orthodox some southern baptist folks um and you can also find me on facebook gabriel gordon and the book is also i would encourage you uh, don't support our corporate overlords. You can actually order if there's a local independent bookstore, you can actually order it through them. Um, it might take a little bit longer to get there, but uh, you're supporting local. So, yeah, yeah. Good, good stuff. Um, good stuff. So, um, well, we really do appreciate you um, coming on. I've already seen some a comment on here. Somebody's actually looking forward to reading the book now. So, um, we thank you for sharing your time. Thanks for reaching out and uh, wanting to come on and talk to us. Um, and something we kind of do here at HCN when we do have a guest is we put you on the spot and we're going to ask you to pray for us, pray for those watching, um, if you would, if you feel comfortable with that. I am a thorough, thorough Episcopalian, which means I hate spontaneous prayer. Um, <laughs> I am terrible at it, but you know, um, I will pray um, the Jesus prayer for us, okay, which is yeah. a very short awesome. Eastern Orthodox yes. prayer. But um, Lord, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Parson Brown Podcast. 
I hope you enjoyed this engaging conversation with Gabriel Gordon, and you can look in the show notes to find out where he is online and the ways to connect with Gabriel and learn more about his understanding of the inspiration of Scripture. 